Friends, we're back in 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning after a few weeks uh, apart from it. And the Apostle Paul really wrote uh, many letters in his whole lifetime, but this uh, is the first one that we know that he sent and is to a church uh, that he cares about in a place in Greece called Thessalonica. We've heard previously uh, how he encouraged uh, and how encouraged he was by them as well, how much he loves them, uh, how he was with them and now he's apart from them and he really misses them so much. And at the end of uh, this first section of the letter, we have uh, this part of chapter four that we're going to be looking at uh, today. We'll tell you about a man called John Turner. John was a man who cared for his wife, loved to talk to you about his daughter, Uh, He smiled uh, every time you mentioned his grandchildren. Uh, He was the first person to arrive at church uh, every Sunday morning. Actually, he was just the first person uh, in the church building every day. He slowly meandered through the building, setting out the chairs, uh, emptying bins or trash cans. He was never phased. John was never flustered by really anything happening either in the building or in his life. Nothing was a big deal for John. And that was really until you began to talk about his savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Then uh, kicked in his years of knowing who God was, knowing God's faithfulness, knowing God's nearness. This was after years and years of beginning each of his mornings in God's word. And praying through his little notebook of prayer requests and things to to pray about that he remembered or things that he had to write down or he liked to keep a note of. Not many people know John's name. Not many people uh, saw how he served and uh, how he loved. Not many people uh, saw how crazy his teeth were when he smiled if you were able to get him to laugh. It was an incredible uh, humility about John, a faithfulness, an obedience. These were real characteristics that he showed day in and day out. And there was really nothing remarkable about John, nothing special about John. You wouldn't have looked at him twice in the street. And as I said, people hardly even knew who he was. I think we see a lot of this uh, in our verses Today, I think we see a lot in our verses today that this is exactly what the Christian life is meant to be like. It's simple. Christian life should be filled with humility. Christian life should be generous. It's to be kind and it's to be loving. And I think we'll see that it's clearly meant to be holy. That's what I saw in John's life and That's really what we see in our our passage today, uh, where our main point, I think, is as we obey Christ more closely, we should grow in holiness and grow in love. As we obey Christ more closely, we should grow in holiness and we should grow in love. As we walk through the text, we're just going to be focusing on these two ways that we should be continuing to grow in the Christian life. And so these will be our two points. Grow in holiness, verses 3 to 8, and grow in love, verses 9 to 12. So before our, our two points, you'll see those two points beginning in 3 and going all the way through to 12. We have our first uh, two verses, verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. Paul begins with the word finally, and I think that's, that he's just wrapping up uh, this particular section uh, of the letter that he's been writing. We've had an introduction to the letter, uh, the reasons why he can't be there. Uh, he's reminded them of the love, and, and then we see the report from Timothy that we looked at last time. And now we're just dealing with uh, particular issues and uh, suggestions from Paul on how to continue living as faithful Christians in Thessalonica. And we just get to look at this letter. This letter is also for us. It's how we continue living together uh, in holiness, in love here in Ras al This letter 
uh, really isn't a rebuke from Paul, I don't think, but it's more, uh, I think we can assume after Timothy's report, there were probably some follow-up questions uh, given. And now uh, in chapters 4 and 5, uh, we are going to be dealing with these, and they're broken into really just questions of sex, uh, questions of love, uh, questions about work, and then questions really about Christ's return. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, as kind of big overarching themes these next two or three weeks, uh, just because that's what we see uh, here in the letter. So we know that Paul is writing, uh, this is a young church, these are young Christians, uh, fairly new believers, uh, and they're out there deep in Greece, uh, they're under pressure, and so from the beginning he makes it clear that he loves them. These, again, we see that key word, they are his brothers. He's writing, he's writing to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. He said, I want you guys to be encouraged and strengthened this morning as we look at these same words. Strengthened in their faith. And he wants to reinforce the teaching that they have already received from him and from others. This is why we see that he is asking them. We see that he's urging them. I should hear uh, that repetition, that uh, asking and urging, just driving the point home. This, what we're talking about today, Paul is saying, this is serious. I'm asking you, I'm urging you. Guys, this is important. They need to listen up. And I think we do too this morning. I mean, I get asked uh, similar questions by members here. And I think uh, Christians are asking the same questions all across the world regularly. Really kind of, how far is too far with my boyfriend? Or how do I care well for my wife? How do I honor my boss? Or is it okay to ask friends for financial help? Should I be helping someone if it's clear that they're just lazy? All of these questions, totally normal, and all of these questions dealt with here in our, our text this morning. Paul makes it clear from the outset that these things, they, these answers, they all lie in what Jesus Christ has said and what Jesus Christ has accomplished by what Jesus Christ has done and that we're helped by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian this morning, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and that your life is for God's glory. Your life is to be spent uh, pleasing Him. So if you're a Christian here this morning, even if you became a Christian maybe this year or these past few months, then you have heard and you have received the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And as you read the Bible and as you sit under the preaching of the church, uh, this church here or your previous church, if you've recently moved to Ras Al-Khaimah, then you're in the same position as these Christians here. This is what Paul means in verse 1 when he look there, he says... As you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. I think we all know what it's like to to live alongside someone and whether you can believe what they say. I think that's something we learn pretty quickly about each other. Can I trust you and your words? I think it's why the saying something like actions speak louder than words is so well known. Words are cheap. Really, I or you can just say anything to each other. I can make all sorts of promises. You can do that to your neighbors and to your friends. It's what we do. It's a very different matter. Friends, do, you, do your words match up with your life? Are you well known for keeping your word? Or are you someone who was well known for breaking their promises. Paul here, I think, places an emphasis on how we walk. And by that, he means how we live, our actions, the things we do with our bodies, how we think, how we treat others, what we do in private, those thoughts that only God sees, thankfully. Really, you can say anything. Anyone can but how we live friends that says so much more and as believers as those who have come to faith and those who follow God then we are see that we are called to live holy lives we have a holy God and everything in your life is for his pleasing it's for his honor 
The Thessalonian church was doing this. Paul commends them, praise God. But look there at what Paul says. He says that you do so more and more. Friends, like any relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, take my marriage to my wife, Laura, it should get better week to week or month to month or year to year. It should grow. It should get stronger. I'll get things wrong. She's going to get things wrong. But we grow. We care better for each other month after month, year after year. It should get deeper. And our relationship should grow. This is the same for our friendships and our relationships here. But it's especially the case with your life as a Christian. And it's helpful to stop and think about this. This is a good question to, to think through this afternoon or this week. Have you grown this year as a Christian? Has your relationship with God strengthened this year? If not then why not? It's another helpful question to think through and process. You don't even have to do it alone this week. Maybe grab some time with someone. Talk through that question. Think through the whys and the why nots. What's happened this year? What's changed? We know that God has not moved. He has not changed who he is. Friends, like so many of these things this morning, we see the responsibility lies in us in our own sin and in our own hearts. God never changes. He's always the same. So really through Christ's instruction and then through Christ's calling, sending out the apostles, we now have this teaching that's found in the Bible. It's the word of God and it's for our encouragement. It's for our instruction. All that we have in our Bibles is from God. These are not just Paul's good ideas that we're looking at this morning. These are not just uh, Timothy's nice thoughts on the Christian life. Through Christ's commission and the influence of the Holy Spirit, we now have God's word for us here today. This is what you should expect to hear preached from this pulpit. This is what you should expect week after week. You should settle for nothing less. Let's look at verse 2. Paul carries on reminding them, you see that word instructions, I think that's a really important word and carries with it kind of military emphasis, is often where that word is, is used in the Bible in a military context. What kind of image does, if I say military, what does that bring to mind? I was thinking through this and I I think it suggests to me, it kind of brings images of something that's deliberate, something that's disciplined. And this is really how we're to see the Christian life. Paul is reminding us that through our calling as Christians, through a holy God we now live for, that we now serve and live at his pleasure, with his standards, as he describes, as he's given to us in his word. This military language suggests action means discipline. Paul ends verse 2 with this reminder that these instructions were given, he says, through the Lord Jesus. Friends, if Christ is your Lord, then you should love his word and you should be living for his glory. Friends, Christ is the Lord of our lives. If you're a Christian, this should not be a shock or a surprise to you this morning. And if you disagree or that makes you feel particularly uncomfortable, then you might not be a Christian. Christ is not the Lord of your life. Then you can't be a Christian. What Paul is saying, it's not just friendly advice here. It's not even just good advice, which it, it is, but... What is to follow comes with the authority of Jesus Christ. And we must bring to mind what he said. If this is from Jesus Christ, then I hope you'll agree it's not something that we can ignore today. It's important that you see through the text today that we are not to be self-pleasers or man-pleasers. And above all, we are to be God-pleasers in all that we do. 
This is what Paul is hitting at hard in these verses. They are to be a people that seek to please God more. And this means they will grow in holiness and grow in love. We come to our first point. Grow in holiness. Grow in holiness. Verses 3 to 8. I read a pretty shocking headline this week that said, Man happily includes wife's lover in wedding photos. And in the article, the groom is quoted as saying, Cheating on me is just part of her identity. This sounds exactly like something horrendous out of ancient Greece. But friends, this is society today. This is exactly the same situation that the Thessalonians have been saved out of. They were living, this letter written to a people living in a society where other heathen religions, they either encourage or at least ignore the sexuality or the sexual preferences of their devotees or of people. We're in a situation today where a man is okay with his wife, A, having a lover, but including that lover in their wedding photos. Satisfaction and pursuing your own desires and identity were and still are the order of the day, either with your slaves or another person or whoever you wish, young or old, male or female. This is generally thought of uh, by great and contemporary philosophers like Plutarch or Cicero at the time, but all uh, also maybe modern philosophers like Minaj or Dojacat have said, let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let not pleasures always be forbidden. I'll let you decide which one of those philosophers said that. But friends, we should not be surprised by the world. Should not be surprised by its reckless pursuit of self or of desire, of excess. And of course, should not be surprised by its rebellion against God. What should be clear for us, friends, and should get clearer every day is that Christians are meant to look different to the world and that a pursuit of sexual sin is contrary to the will of God and and that it is His desire for our sanctification. That is where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians from as they find themselves in a similar situation to what we do today. What is acceptable, what we see and what we hear and what the word will tell you to pursue. In these verses for us today, Paul is immediately linking your obedience to Christ and how you live your life, including how you use your body, how hard you work at your jobs, how you enjoy yourself, really every area of your life upon conversion is to be changed and reoriented. You were previously walking in one direction and then you heard the gospel of your Christian this morning and immediately upon following Christ, your life has completely changed. The direction you're living should be completely changed. You're now alive, friends. You should now be walking in completely the opposite direction. All, instead of pursuing yourself and your own pursuit and desire and satisfaction, now completely walking towards the Lord in obedience to Him, seeking His glory, His satisfaction. Friends, this is not because of anything you've done. This is because a holy God chose you. He has set you apart. This is what sanctification, that word there in verse 3, that's what it means to be set apart. It's God's will for your life, your sanctification. If you're a Christian, you are sanctified through the finished work of Christ. You are holy because of Christ's finished work, but simultaneously, God has called you to be holy. And to continue in your holiness. The same in the law courts when we see uh, that adoptive declaration. 
When the judge's gavel comes down and declares a child to be adopted, that instant, their identity changes. Well, the same when a slave is set free, that instant, they are free. But there are challenges. They need help. We need time to understand and what it means to live in this new identity, to live in this new life. The decision is final, it's complete. But friends, you've been set free. Now we have instruction and there's help to help us now live in the truth and the goodness of that new identity. You truly, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are now part of God's family. And he is the one who's given you all that you need to do this through his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He brought you to be part of a a church. Friends, becoming more like Christ. This is our job and our task every day with his help in preparation for an eternity with him. Like that adopted child. You have been removed from that dangerous situation, that perilous situation that you were in, pulled out, and your identity has changed. And over time, as you now live in this new situation every day with the help of the Holy Spirit, you're to grow, to understand that new identity further and leave behind your old life. But it takes time. Of course it does. 2 Corinthians, I think is so helpful for us as we understand we have the Holy Spirit in us and we're now the temple of God and that spiritually and physically we are to seek to live for God's glory. It says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's look there with, at verse 3 with me. Paul continues there, he says, the the one way that we are sanctified, growing in holiness, is as we abstain from sexual immorality. There are so many things wrapped up in this short sentence. First of all, just that word abstain, what does that mean? It's a word that means, the dictionary says, it means deliberately refrain, to deliberately refrain from something. We see there that there is some choice, some control, there's the ability to stop. It shows that when we come to to sin, to sexual immorality, that there is some assessment for us to to make. There are decisions that we need a plan, that we need to, to process it in a meaningful way so that we can properly fight sin. Friends, perhaps you here this morning, perhaps you're better at planning how to sin instead of how to avoid it. Friends, perhaps you're better at planning how to sin instead of planning how to avoid it. So for the Christian, had the instruction to abstain from sexual immorality. I think initially that might just be a frustratingly short Sentence, a frustratingly short list. I don't know about you, is there not more that Paul was going to say about that? Isn't there like a little list of something to check off? Maybe sometimes this, you can only do X on a Thursday, or if you're engaged, then you can maybe do Y, or if you really like her, you can do Z, or maybe if you think he's really special, then A and B are totally fine. I think we can really desire for more information, to have more blurred lines. I think Paul, here for us, friends, is deliberately succinct. As here for us and for the Thessalonians. He lifts up that whole box of sexual sin, the whole box of it, and puts it all down in front of us. All wrapped up and sealed And says to us, don't go near it. Puts all of it in front of you this morning. And says, don't touch it. Don't touch. It might be tempting to look at. 
the whole box, everything in one. Don't go near it. Just to be clear, Paul is saying that for the Christian, there is to be a complete avoidance of sexual immorality. A complete avoidance. This is anything outside of sexual intimacy or intercourse within the marriage of one man to one woman. As we see again in Genesis 2, we see that in Mark 10, we see that in Ephesians 5. I hope if for married couples this morning, I also hope you see that this means that there is a lot of scope. There's a lot of uh, scope to enjoy and explore and experiment with a wide range of ways to enjoy this intimacy within your marriage, whatever you decide to do or to not do. Friends, Paul very clearly here draws a firm, very defined line in the sand for us this morning, for anyone that is not married. If you are not married, then these things are not for you, not yet. This should be a very liberating and also a very straightforward thing for us. Paul is not dealing here with different scenarios or different options, but is giving us clear guardrails, clear guidelines for Christian holiness, for our good. This is for our protection. Also, more importantly, this is for God's glory, as I think we'll go on to see. Does this mean that married couples cannot be sexually immoral? No, of course not. We'll look at that in our coming verses too. But friends, for those of us who are not married, anyone who's single here this morning, Paul is putting all of this in front of you. For the Christian life. Saying, do not touch this. Don't go near it. Look at verses 4 and 5. For a brief, just a brief second here, I want you just to try to ignore the gendering of these sentences. I think it reads like a lot of this is just written to brothers and it talks about he and him. And I think just for our time together, this is unhelpful. Of course, I know gender is important, uh, but these verses are as much here for uh, ladies as well as men. This morning, I don't want the ladies here to just tune out. I think this, these temptations are an issue for ladies as well as for man. For whether this is lust or temptation, please don't just tune out because you see the word he there. Ladies, this is as, as much for you here this morning. Okay, so here we see Paul is dealing with how we are to, to live honorably when it comes to sex. The verb control and the phrase his own body here really mean to gain mastery over. For some translations, it's the, the body mentioned. For other translations, it's particular body parts. I think here that this is referring to your own body, not that of someone else's. If we are to be honoring and loving to others, then we're just not viewing another person as simply a sexual object. I think however we uh, look at this means to be, uh, that we're called to be honorable in our sexual activity. To treat our spouse, and that is the, the only person we're to have sexual relations with, to treat that person with respect and love and care and to enjoy them and for them to enjoy us. For the world, these relationships and sex, they're selfish, centered on me. And for the Christian, sex is to be selfless and centered on our spouse. Think about that this week. Think about how that might radically change your marriage and your sexual intimacy. Put the other person first. Uh, to be holy does not mean an absence of sexual activity. But we see 
here that holiness should govern and control this activity. And God has really provided a perfect time and situation for it within a marriage between one man and one woman. I think the image of fire is really helpful when we think about this. Fire is something that is good. Uh, Fire is something that is great. When it's used properly, it provides warmth. It cooks food. It's amazing how great is a fire on on a cold winter's night or sitting around the fire in the desert with friends. Friends, it's the same with sex. It is a wonderful and great gift from God. And how amazing is it when used in its proper place? within the covenant bond of marriage, with love and respect and honor. It's there that sex finds its perfect place. It's safe. It's enjoyable. It doesn't just have to be on a winter's night. All of that is completely up to you. But outside of this, friends, like a fire that is lit in a dangerous location, something that is good can cause great and deadly damage. Fire wreaks havoc when used badly. It destroys everything it touches. It's hard to control. It ruins lives and hurts people, often irreversibly. Friends, sex is the same. Verse 5 continues, our lives should be characterized by love and honor, not lust and shame as the Gentiles know and experience. Gentiles means those that don't know God. And we know that the world is driven by lust. It says, give me what I want right now and I really don't care about the human or the emotional or the physical cost to either me or to anyone else. Just give me what I want. Friends, when we're living lives of holiness and honor, then we treat those we come across with dignity, with respect, and with love as we have been treated by God, as He has loved us and as He has dealt with us. All of this should cause our lives to look radically different to the world around us. This means our singleness, this means our dating, this means our engagements, this means our marriages should all look completely different to those that you work with or those in your friends or your family elsewhere. It means that if a couple breaks up, then it, yeah, it might be sad, sure. But it shouldn't be devastating as they've not slept together. They haven't been living together for years and years. They haven't bought a dog together or all the other things that people do before they get married. Friends, even our breakups should look different to the world. If it doesn't, then there is a serious problem. Verse 6 is a really serious reminder of how God sees this and how adultery, pornography, and other sexual immorality seriously damage and wrongs our brothers and sisters. These things sever relationships. They are like grenades going off within marriages, within families, and within communities. If you've been close to some of those things, then you yourself, you know the damage. You've seen it firsthand. You might even still be scarred by it this morning. This is very serious. Friends, this verse also points to the the further danger that goes along with getting it wrong and how it hurts others. But also in verse 7 and 8, we see how it's ultimately God that we are primarily dishonoring. God here is described as an avenger. If we know from Romans 1 and Romans 8 that they say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 8 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Friends, as we come to the end of this first point is helpful but also perhaps terrifying to know that sexual sin does not happen by accident. They were not helpless in it. 
You don't just wake up having had an affair or you don't just find yourself looking at pornography or find yourself in an inappropriate situation with someone. You have made those choices. Friends, you are not helpless in your sin. I want to encourage you this morning, but I also want us to take some responsibility for our sin and the seriousness of it. We all have choices to make. Friends, we need to not kid ourselves that we need to take those thoughts captive. Or we need to not be going on our laptops late at night. Or we need to stop hanging out so much alone with that particular guy. Or we need to begin seriously confessing our sin to one another. Be praying. Be actively fighting for purity. Hope you see this is a very serious matter. Have to be a people that are killing sin. We saw for the last few months and years that uh, in the pandemic that when lives are at stake, we can and we are willing to go to extreme lengths to fight sickness. Honestly, Sexual immorality, friends, has the ability to destroy lives, has the ability to destroy churches and gospel witnesses in exactly the same way. We have to take this seriously. We must take it seriously. To live in ways that are dishonoring to God, friends, you are in danger. Deliberately refrain from sexual immorality. Friends, you are living as someone who is still a slave when in fact you have been declared set free. Thankfully that God has given us help. We do have the Holy Spirit in us. You are part of a church. You live alongside brothers and sisters to share with, to pray with, to organize accountability with. If you're engaged or uh, newly married or in a relationship, meet with an older couple. Ask for their help. Those of us who've got it wrong, who've messed up in ways and would love to help help you avoid doing the same things. Reach out to people. Tell those people the truth. Ask them to tell you the truth. Be in each other's lives. Friends, this is life and death. A fire of sexual sin like this can break out at any point and we want to help you extinguish that fire before it completely burns your house down and most likely kills you in the process. You'll notice that throughout this sermon I've talked about what to do if you're a Christian. Uh, You may be here this morning and you may have realized that you just like or you do lots of these things. Perhaps you love Pornography. Perhaps you love and pursue sex with many people. Perhaps you just want what you want. What I would say to you is that these things point to the fact that you may not know God and you're not living for Him. This morning I'm not trying to just change your behavior, but I want to hold out to you an even greater offer, something that truly will satisfy that deep longing that you feel, that deep hurt that you feel deep inside of you when you do those things that you try to hide with maybe a big smile or silliness or maybe just more drinking, more partying, and maybe even just more sex to try and make yourself feel better, to get that high again and again. Friends, I know these things don't satisfy. They don't make you feel good. Friend, let me be honest with you this morning. If this describes you, then you are a sinner and you're in the right place. This is a room full of sinners, people who have rebelled and rejected God. You are a sinner in need of a savior and the only one that can satisfy, the only one that can take away the pain and the guilt and the shame that is eating you up, even right now. That is all 
only found in Jesus Christ. He loves you so much that he went to the cross. Having, been, having lived a perfect life and having been tempted in every way that you are tempted. Didn't once go near or touch this box of temptation. Not even close. Yet he was punished. Yet he died. Taking your punishment that you deserved for all of your sin. The amazing thing is though, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Beating sin and death. Beating that and taking that guilt and shame that you feel. So that you can live in freedom. A slave to your sin now set free like so many here already. Friend, there is freedom found in Christ at the cross, bought for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have been, if this describes you this morning, then you can be set free through faith in Him. Before you come to Him, cannot clean yourself, you don't need to come before Him washed, ready. He does all of that. Come as you are. Come to Him. The only one who can bring freedom. The only one who can set you free from your guilt and shame. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, friends. This is held out to you by the one who rules in majesty. The one who rules with justice. And the only one who could rescue you in your failing. This is the perfect love shown to us by God through sending his son. This is the perfect love that enables us as Christians here this morning to love. To love generously and abundantly. To care well for those around us. It helps us as we turn to our second point. Verses 9 to 12. Grow in love. Grow in love. Paul carries on this theme of love. He's gone from speaking negatively by saying love each other, by not sinning against each other, either sexually or in other ways from the previous verses. And now he speaks positively for us about the same thing. Look there, verses 9 and 10 for me. He flags what it's about. He says, brotherly love. As we've said before, this is love between Christians. It's not really referring to your biological siblings here. It's the brothers and sisters here at this church. Paul does is again and again commend the Christians there. Their love is overflowing. Their love extends beyond just their congregation. It's actually known all the way across to Macedonia. Really as it should be. This is our desire here for us as a church, our desire for other churches to know and be cared for by our members here, by us as a church, as we love them, as we support them, as we pray for them, as we encourage them, and even as we support them financially, as we help establish other gospel ministries in these emirates here and beyond all across the nations. As these are a people from various backgrounds, just like here, and they all have the Holy Spirit in them. And so they have a special union. It's the same here. Paul is saying to them, you guys know this. You guys are doing it. You actually don't need me time and time again to visit and to tell you. Saying God has shown you already this himself. He says you have been taught by God there. We know he's done this perfectly through Christ. Yet even for us this morning, we still need constant nudges of this. Keep doing, keep on doing these good things. And we know that brotherly love is a love that puts other person, it puts the other person's interests first. It seeks to encourage the other person when we don't feel like it. it means us praying for each other, lifting them up when they're struggling and supporting them and helping them. I think it also means probably the more difficult thing. It's also celebrating with them when things are going well. 
This is the hard thing to do, isn't it? Celebrate with someone. When someone's struggling, it's very easy to put our arm around them and say, oh, I'm so sorry. It's actually very hard when, someone, when things are going well in someone else's life and maybe not in yours. It's very hard to celebrate with someone. This is what it means to, to love someone, to stand and walk and live alongside our brothers and sisters here. Paul goes on then to encourage them to grow in this area, seeking to live quietly, being humble and working hard. We know we each have our own responsibilities in this area, and of course, things go wrong sometimes. People get sick, or perhaps you work somewhere and you're not being treated very well by your boss. But Paul here is saying that in the the regular day-to-day of our lives, look there at verse 11, and see these simple but I think hard truths. He's saying that in our regular lives as Christians, we should not be argumentative and controversial. That's in our conversations with each other, that's on social media, that's in your lunch break, in the staff room. Shouldn't enjoy stirring the pot. We're not robots, of of course, but our, our talk and our conversations, our lives, they should be an encouragement to those around you. Perhaps you're here, perhaps you're, you've been here for a while and maybe you're struggling with friendships that are deep and close. Friend, the hard truth might just be that you are difficult and you are tiring to be around. That might be the hard truth this morning. That because of your conversation, because of how controversial you are, because of how you gossip, You are difficult to be around. That might be the truth for you this morning. Also told there, look with me, it says, to mind our own affairs, to mind our own business. Stop getting involved in other people's business where it's not needed. Stop gossiping about it. Stop jumping in where it's not necessary. Normally this is Obvious, but for some of us, we just love the drama. You love the drama. It's causing problems. It's causing difficulties. Here we're told to mind your own affairs. Stop it. It's not necessary. Love people. Encourage them. Clearly there was another issue in Thessalonica that Paul also deals with here, some members of the church that were lazy. They didn't want to work hard. They wanted to depend on other Christians in the church that had more money. They didn't want to pay their own way. They wanted someone else to buy all their groceries. They wanted someone else to pay their rent every month. They wanted someone else to always give them rides. Those are fantastic ways that we can bless people. Of course, sometimes things happen. Sometimes these situations come about because someone is lazy. Maybe they even have the money, they just would rather you pay than they pay. Friends, maybe this is you. Maybe this is you. Friends, Paul here is saying that to be consistently dependent on someone else instead of getting a job, that is unloving. Paul says not only is it unloving, but there are the... The end of verse 11, you see that it means that you're not walking the Christian life properly. And worryingly, the church knows it. And he says, sadly, the outsiders know it too. We'll deal with the idle person again in chapter 5 in a couple of weeks, but Paul here is just offering a very clear warning 
to you who are lazy. You are not living as Christians who are called by God. Christians are not called to be lazy. Everything Paul here discusses is sandwiched between chapters 3 and then the rest of 4 where he reminds the Thessalonians of the reality of Christ's return. Friends, Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we do know this for a fact. All of your life is lived for Christ. It's empowered by Christ. It's given to you through the finished work of Christ. As you are made as you are made more like him day by day. All of this so that when he comes again, which he will, we know he's coming back, you will be made perfect and spend eternity before the throne of God in worship. Friends, the Christian life is not a life of excess, but is one of holiness, one of faithfulness, and one in devotion to God. I mentioned John Turner at the beginning of the sermon. I had the great pleasure of working with John for over a year, and we saw each other every morning just for that time. Just a kind, gentle, humble, and quiet man who was so generous to me in so many ways and to so many others. It was how he asked about uh, being newly married or Uh, How he showed me the ropes, even of my new job, even though I was his new boss. He went to be with the Lord through the night, just one weekday evening. I woke up to a message from his wife. And not much fuss was made. Not many people at John's funeral. No major controversies or great excitement. All just spoke simply of a man who trusted the Lord. One who pursued the Lord simply day by day and was faithful in all that he was asked to do. What a wonderful legacy many Christians like John leave who love and serve, they are faithful and they are peaceful. Some of us are called to the public sphere, but many of us, I think nearly all of us, are called to be holy, live simply, work diligently, love deeply before each other, before the world, and before our holy God. 